when two different psukim in two different places in the Torah use the same word or very similar words and there is a tradition to learn particular laws from one of those psukim and apply them to the other psukim because of that common word. This is certainly not that whenever there's a common word in two different psukim, there's a tradition to which Gzeir Shavas we, we have. Now, according to Rabbi Yehuda, there is a Gzeir Shava from the Pasuk talking about the Araminim, or Kachtem Lochem, that you should take for yourself on the first day of Sukkot, Midei Raisa, the Araminim, and elsewhere in the Torah, in Mitzrayim, when the Jews had to take a bundle of certain veg, certain herbs, uh, hyssop, for example, and put blood at the doors, of their houses, there as well the Torah uses the word Ulakachtem. And according to Yehuda, there is a Gzir Shava, and we apply the fact that it was done in a bundle in Mitzrayim with the blood, we apply that point to the Abraminim, and we learn from there that Midoraisa Luluv Tsorich Eged, meaning the Luluv requires bundling up with the Hadassim and the Aravas. There is a requirement to tie the Hadassim and the Aravas together with the Luluv and have those three together tied up. Now because of that, the material which you use to tie them is considered an intrinsic part of the mitzvah of the Abraminim. Now the Torah says that you are to shake four four species, four types of plants, and if somebody were to take, let's say, another vegetable, or another plant, or another fruit, and shake it together with the Abraminim, he would violate the Aveira of Baltosif, of adding on to the Torah. Adding on to a particular mitzvah, the Torah said, shake four species, you're shaking five. Now, because the material which you use to tie the lulav with the Hadasman and the is considered a real part of the mitzvah, it's an obligation and a requirement as part of the mitzvah, if you were to use a different species, that would also be considered baltosif. And because of that, the Mishnah tells us, one can only tie the lulav together with the Hadasman and the with its own species. So, for example, you would use a leaf of a lulav to tie them together. Just like what most people use nowadays, the holder of the lulav and the hadasman aravas is made of the leaves which come off the spine of a lulav. So that way it is not baltosif, you are still only taking four minim, four species, the Rabbi Yehuda, that is the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Now Rabbi Meir argues on the whole Shava, he did not have a tradition to learn the psukim in this way, and therefore according to Rabbi Meir, lulav ain't sorich eged, the lulav does not require as part of the obligation to tie the Luluv together with the Hadassim and the Aravas. It's true that it makes it look nicer, and it's perhaps a good thing to do, but it's not considered an intrinsic part of the mitzvah. And because of that, Rabbi Meir says, you could even use a string of another material, because it's not part of the actual mitzvah, and so you're not adding on to the mitzvah. The whole transgression of Baltosif is if you take the mitzvah and you perform it in, an, in a way where you're adding on to the mitzvah itself. Over here, you're not adding on to the mitzvah, you're merely tying them together, perhaps for practical reasons, perhaps to make it look nicer, to glorify the mitzvah, but it's not a part of the mitzvah, and therefore it is not considered baltosif if it is made of a different material. And Rabbi Meir proves his point. Um, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir said, There is a story which happened with the great men of Yerushalayim, that they would tie, they would bundle up their lulavim, together with the Hadassim and the Aravas, with golden strings, sort of golden chains even. 
So you see that they did it with a different material. Amrulai, Nechachom said back to Rabbi Meir, that is not a proof. Because the truth is, the opposite is true. Because the Minoi, with its own type, let's say with Lulavim leaves, for example, they would tie and bundle up the Lulav with the Habdasman Arovas below the golden strings. So in order to fulfill the requirement of Lulav Tzorich Eged, of bundling up the Lulav together with the Habdasman Arovas, they did use its own type. So they wouldn't be Baltasif. After they had done that, so of course the golden string was only an addition. It wasn't part of the actual mitzvah. It was only to beautify the mitzvah, and therefore they used gold, even though it was not part of the actual Araminim. It wasn't one of the Araminim, and that was not considered to be Baltasif. Mishra text from this point onwards for the rest of the parak and really the beginning of the next parak as well, the Mishra's discussion is more focused around the actual shaking of the Lulav and the practical sides of things rather than the actual validation and the requirements of the Araminim themselves. Now with the Arisa, in order to fulfill the obligation of the Araminim, all one needs to do is pick them up, take them, and that is the mitzvah. And you should take them for yourselves. And that's enough. Midirabonon, however, already from a very early date, the way in which one should ideally fulfill his obligation is not just by picking them up, but by shaking them. Shaking them in all six directions, forwards, backwards, right, left, up, down, to show that Hashem rules the entire world, every direction. And as well as at the, t- at the time of, ki- of fulfilling the mitzvah and making the brachas over the abraminim, one should also shake them during Hallel. The question is, where, at which points during Hallel would one shake the Lulav and the rest of the Abraminim? Firstly, during the Tehillim of Hodul Hashem, that chapter of Tehillim which we say during Hallel, although nowadays we don't necessarily have that as part of our Hallel, but the long Hodul Hashem which we say during Shabbos Pesukah de Zimra, so the first Pasuk and the last Pasuk there begins with Hodul Hashem. So one should shake the Lulav when saying that Pasuk, and as well as that, also in the Pasuk of Ona Hashem Shiana, when he says that first half of the Pasuk, the Pasuk, the full Pasuk, is Ona Hashem Shiana, Ona Hashem Atzlichana. But according to Beis Hillel, one only shakes the Lulav when saying Ona Hashem Shiana. Now why exactly do we shake the Lulav specifically at these two points? So the Medjush actually discusses this and learns it from a Pasuk of Oziranenu Atzia Yoar, the wood, the trees of the forest, will then rejoice Melefnei Hashem in front of Hashem, Ki because he has come to judge the land. The Medjush explains this is referring to after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, when the entire world was judged, and some people came out innocent with a good sentence, some people came out guilty with a bad sentence, and Hashem gave us sukkus that we should take the Raminim, and we should rejoice as if we know that we came out innocent, that we came out with a good sentence, and a good verdict. So, Ozranenu, then they should rejoice using the Atzayar, using the wood and the plants of the forest, using the Araminim, after Hashem came to judge the land, and the Potsuka over there continues, so that's why we shake the Araminim at that point. And the Potsuk after that is, And you should say, Save us Hashem, the God of our salvation, talking about Hashem saving us. And so that's why when we say, Please Hashem save us, at that point we shake the Lulav and the other Araminim. But the Potsuk over there, which the Medjush is talking about, does not talk about asking Hashem for success. For Hatzlocha, rather, asking Hashem for Yeshua, on Hashem Eshiyana, and therefore, we only shake the Avraminim at that point. Dibri Beis Hillel, that is the opinion of Beis Hillel. Beis Shema Eimrim, or Beis Shammai say, Af, but on Hashem Atzichana, 
even in the second half of the Pasuk, when we say, on we also shake the Araminim, because the Medjush in the Pasuk is referring to that Pasuk. Not only the part of the Pasuk which talks about salvation, but the entire Pasuk, so since on Slichana is a continuation of that same Pasuk, we also shake the Araminim at that point. And indeed, Omar Biakiva, Rabbi Akiva cites a story where we see these two opinions play out. Sefer Ha'isi Gamliel of Rabbi Yeshua. I was peering, I was watching Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua during Halel on Sukkot. Shekada Om That all of the people davening there were shaking their lulavim, and they continued shaking them even when they set the posuk, the part of the posuk of Ona Shemat However, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Gamliel themselves, they only shook the lulav at the first part of the posuk on just like the opinion of Beis Hillel. And the halacha is that if a person has a mitzvah upon him to perform, and that mitzvah is bound to a specific time, he's got a time limit on that mitzvah. For example, davening, the time for davening mincha, for example, is only until night. Or for example, the araminim, which also can only be performed during that day. So one is not allowed to start long activities until he has performed the mitzvah. And that includes eating a proper meal. Now the mission discusses somebody, Misha Baba Derech, somebody who's coming on a journey. Let's say it's Cholamoyed. So he went on a long journey. And in the morning, perhaps when he davened, he didn't have a lulav to take and shake at the earliest opportunity. When he enters into his house and he reaches some, some Abraminim, so ideally, as soon as possible, he should shake the Abraminim to fulfill the mitzvah as soon as he can. And because of that, it is forbidden to start having a meal, for example. Now, what happens if he did start a meal? He has to take next to his table. He has to take the lulav. He has to stop his meal. Since he began eating the meal when it was forbidden for him to do so, he has to interrupt his meal and take the lulav and shake it in order to fulfill the mitzvah. Now, ideally, as we said, the mitzvah of Araminim, just like most mitzvahs which have a time limit, should be performed at the earliest opportunity. This comes under the general concept of Zerizim Akdimen the mitzvahs. The one should be as quick and eager to do a mitzvah as possible, to show his excitement for the mitzvah, and the earliest time to shake the lulav is from the morning, from sunrise. Neitzachama, but the Mishnah says, Neinotol Shachris, if he did not take the lulav and fulfill the mitzvah during the morning, then Yitzhul bin Arbayim, he can still take it in the afternoon, and he must, he must do so, Shekalayim Koshla Lulav, because the entire day is valid for fulfilling the mitzvah of Lulav and Araminim. He has the entire day, but of course, ideally, it should be done as early as possible. Mr. Yud, since the previous Mishnah discussed the shaking of the lulav during Halal, the Mishnah now goes slightly sidetracked to discuss laws of Halal itself. Somebody had a non-Jewish slave, or a woman, or a child under the age of Barabbas Mitzvah, reading out Halal for him, if let's say he didn't know how to read, so he couldn't say Halal by himself, so he got one of these people to read Halal out for him, says the Mishnah, he should then answer after they say, let's say, posik by posik, he should answer what they are saying, he should repeat exactly what they are saying, in order to fulfill his obligation. The point being that since a non-Jewish slave and a woman and a child under the age of Barabbas Mitzvah are not obligated to say Hallel, because Hallel is a positive mitzvah, which is bound to a specific time, a mitzvah as so they are not obligated in the mitzvah. Now in general, there is a rule of Shomea Ka'ine, the one who hears something, it's as if he himself actually said it. For example, if somebody reads from the Torah, 
or if somebody says Kiddush for everybody else, so everybody fulfills their obligation as if they said it themselves. But this mechanism of Shemeah Ka'ina only works if the person saying the Kiddush, or the person reading from the Torah, himself is obligated to do so. In such a case, he can fulfill other people's obligation as well. But in this case, that you've got somebody, like a woman, who is not obligated to say Hallel. So if you just hear it from her, that's not enough to fulfill your obligation. The mechanism of Shemea Ka'ina does not work. And that's why the Mishnah says that you have to actually say exactly what she is saying in order to fulfill your obligation. And the Mishnah adds to Sehelo Me'ira. There should be a curse upon this person, meaning it is not at all impressive, and it is not a good thing that this person has to come to rely on a non-Jewish slave or a woman or a child to help him out reading Hallel. You should go learn some Torah, go learn how to read, and not be reliant on these people to be able to fulfill his obligation of Hallel. Now says the Mishnah, if an adult male Jew was reading the Hallel for him, so then the mechanism of Shemeah Ka'ina does work. And so technically he could be quiet throughout the whole of Hallel, hear it from this person, and fulfill his obligation. Now the Rabbana said that he should also own Ach of He should answer after Malaluka at the end of every Posuk, or every phrase of Hallel. He should say this word of Halaluka, which is a phrase of praise to Hashem, to show that he is part of this, but in terms of fulfilling our obligation of Hallel, it is enough just to hear this person say it, and then via the mechanism of Shemeaka Oine, he will fulfill his obligation. Alright, now every seven years is a Shemitah year, and for that entire year it's forbidden to work the land in Eretz Yisrael, and one has to leave his land, his fields open for people to come in and take produce, and only that which grows by itself without one working the land is permitted to eat, Majabon, even that's forbidden. And when it comes to determining whether something grew during Shemitah or during the previous year, so fruit which grow on a tree and vegetables which grow on the ground are different. When it comes to fruit, we follow the stage of Chanota, the stage where the fruit buds and begins to grow and ripen. At the beginning of its growth, if that took place during the sixth year of the Shemitah cycle, then even if the fruit is picked during Shemitah, that is considered to be a sixth year fruit. On the other hand, vegetables go after the stage of picking them from the ground, and therefore even if they grew mostly in the sixth year, if they are picked from the ground in the seventh year, then they are considered to be Schmitter vegetables. Now, Schmitter vegetables and all Schmitter produce has many restrictions on it. For example, it's forbidden to do business and start selling lots of one's Schmitter produce. One also has to make sure to have eaten all of the Schmitter produce, and if that sanctity has been passed on to money, so the money has to be gotten rid of by a particular point in the year and the Shemitah sanctity can only be transferred onto certain things. There are many restrictions with produce which grows during Shemitah. Now, in Sech's Bikurim, Ramon Gamliel and Rebiliezer argue as to what exactly is the status of an Esrog tree. On the one hand, it's a tree, so we should follow the stage of Chanoto when it starts to bud. But on the other hand, there is a property of Esrog trees which is very similar to vegetables. And that is, whereas most trees survive just on rainwater, an Esrog tree requires lots of watering by man just like vegetables. Now, according to Bilyezer, that makes no difference. The Esrog tree is just like any other tree, and we follow the stage of Hanota always. Roman Gamliel says that it depends. For certain halachas, we view it as a tree, where we follow the stage of Hanota, whereas for other halachas, we follow the stage of picking it from the ground. Our Mishnah views it, at least for the halachas of Shemitah, as a vegetable, and therefore we follow the stage where it was picked, and it follows that you've got a big problem during Shemitah. Because an Esrug which was picked during the Shemitah year, which would mean really the first two, the Sukkot is only two weeks into the year. So it would have had to be picked within the first two weeks of the year. 
If that was done, then that esrog has the sanctity of Shmita produce, which means that firstly you can't do business with it, so you can't start selling esrogim to lots of people, and furthermore, the person who pays for the esrog, the money used to pay for it actually gains the status of Shmita, at least for many halachas, and therefore, for example, just like the Shmita produce has to be eaten by a particular time during the year, the money also has to be used and gotten rid of by that time. Now, if the person selling the esrog to you, is an Amoritz. He's an ignorant man, he's not so aware of many halachas. If you give him money for the Esrug, you'll very be likely be causing him to violate the restrictions of Shmita. He's going to use the money for what he likes, he won't necessarily get rid of it by the time that he needs to, and so you'd be causing him to do that Avera. As well as the fact that he can't really do business with the Esrugim anyway. To sell one or two that's okay, but to start selling lots of Esrugim that is a problem. And so the Mishnah says, One who buys a Lulav, this is really referring to one who buys Arvaminim from his friend during Shmita. And we'll assume that we're referring to an Amoritz over here. Now when it comes to the Lulav itself, so that goes on a tree and certainly we follow the stage of Hanata. And if you've got a lulav which you're using on Sukkot, which is two weeks into the year, then there's no way that the stage of Hanata, when it started to grow properly and it started to bud, there's no way that that occurred during the Shemitah year. That definitely occurred way more than two weeks ago, which means that that certainly does not have the status of Shemitah. But the problem is when it comes to the esrog, which we go after the stage of picking it from the ground, and it very well could be that it was picked after Rosh Hashanah of that year, during Shemitah. Says the mission, Nesilo esrog matana. The seller should give the buyer the esrog as a gift. Because one is not allowed to buy the esrog during Shemitah, as we explained. Now, what happens if he doesn't want to give it to him for free, which is very likely, especially considering how expensive esrogim could be? So the Gemara explains that you could do something known as havla'ah, which is when he charges a lot more for the lulav, and you are paying a lot more for the lulav, and then you get the esrog for free. That is a way to get around this problem, because this way he's not doing business with the esrog, and the money, he's not giving money for the esrog. He's giving money for the lulav, and therefore it does not gain Schmitter status, just like the lulav didn't have Schmitter status.